This is the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast for the week of June 13, 2021. This week's sermon, Truly Heaven on Earth. And now, here's Brother Stephen Beatty. Uh, the title is Truly Heaven on Earth. You may be thinking, really, what are you talking about, heaven on earth? Uh, a mother wrote a letter in a, to an advice columnist in a newspaper after she lost her 22-year-old daughter to a drunk driver. The mother said in the letter after she died, she got on her knees pleading with God to bring her daughter back to life. She said, you can do anything, God. You can perform miracles. Please, God, let me trade places with her. Now, of course, God refused to answer the mother's request. And at times in the letter, the mother mentioned about committing suicide, but she lacked the courage to pull the trigger. Meanwhile, the drunk driver who killed her daughter just spent less than six months behind bars. The mother wrote, he walks in the sun while my my little girl lies in a dark grave. The mother closed the letter to the advice columnist by saying this. She said, God didn't answer my prayer, and I resent being told that I have no right to question God. If there's a God and I ever get to meet him face to face, you can bet your life I will have plenty of whys for him to answer. I want to know why my little girl died and that drunk was allowed to go on living. I love her more than than my life, and I miss her so much. I am mad having to live in a world where she no longer lives. I don't fear God, and I don't fear fear hell either, she says. I know what hell is like. I've already been there since the day my precious daughter was killed. You know, even though you might we might wince, you know, at that mother's defiant attitude towards God, you know, we can empathize with her questions about the goodness of God. You know, we talk about it all the time, all the things we see going on, the heinous acts going on, not only in in our own community, in our region, but in other countries across the world. You know, if there is a God, why does he allow us to live in a world in which we live in? A world full of child abuse and starvation across the world, illness, disease, on and on it goes. Why doesn't God create a world where there's peace, there's freedom from conflict, and perfect where perfect righteousness reigns? Then we know from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that there was a time that such a world did exist. Remember that before chapter 3 in the fall of man, there was a perfect world and a perfect setting. However, we know sin entered into the picture. Paradise was lost. But guess what? Folks, paradise hasn't been lost forever, has it? The Bible says that one day Jesus Christ is coming back to this world again and he's going to establish a new world order. You know, Satan loves to copycat everything of God. He's going to try to, he's going to establish during the tribulation a new world order. But after that temporary new world order, there's going to be a new righteous reigning new world order where there's peace and justice and righteousness will finally reign. This period of time is what we're going to talk about today. 
if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 19. And Daniel will have it on the screen, and I'll, I'll tell you, I normally have my verses wrote down here too, and I wore my contact lenses today. So I'm going to do, I left my phone back there. I took pictures of it, but I'm going to do the very best I can. If I'm a little slow as I'm trying to read from the screen back there, so just bear with me this morning, okay? Bear with me because I hate writing. Lengthy. It bothers me. You're not used to writing so much. It bothers you after a while trying to write, write, write. That's why we have this. My computer's not set up yet. And so anyway, just bear with me. We're going to talk about in what a sense is a type of heaven on earth. It's a time in Bible prophecy we call the millennium. Outside of the rapture, there is uh, no topic that causes more debate and controversy in Bible prophecy than the subject of the millennium. Now, what does the word millennium mean? The English word comes from two, two Latin words, milli, which is a thousand in Latin, and annum, year. The millennium is what we call a thousand years. And this is the millennium definition in Bible prophecy. It is that 1,000-year period of time during which Christ will reign on the earth, fulfilling promises to Abraham and his believing descendants. Now, even, the word, even though the word millennium isn't found in the Bible, just like the word trinity isn't found in the Bible, the, this concept of a thousand-year reign of Christ is found all over Scripture especially in the passage we're going to look at this morning. Now, remember where we are in Bible prophecy. Last time, that was a few weeks ago, last time we were here, we looked at that climactic battle, the battle or the, what we call as the war, the battle of Armageddon, where all the world forces had come together on the plain of Megiddo to wage war against who? Initially, it was Antichrist. They were tired of his tyrannical reign, so they come to meet to do battle to overthrow the tyrannical rule of the one world dictator. Then as that way, as that war was waging on, the heavens parted, and guess who appeared in the clouds? The Lord Jesus Christ appeared. And we, who were raptured with him, we returned with him to, to earth, dressed in our finest white linen and on horseback. And if you still want horseback lessons, you can get with Jennifer and Stanley. They'll get you ready for that. Ride that, that white horse down from heaven back to earth. Jesus slays the enemies at this point, and this is Christ's second coming. Now look at what happens in Revelation 19, verse 20. He says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown, notice this, alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, okay? Remember, we talked about this satanic uh, trinity. You know, we have the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is a satanic trinity. You have the beast, that's Antichrist, the false prophet. And, of course, you have at the head of that satanic trinity, you have the Bible calls him the dragon, Satan. He's the power behind Antichrist. Now, you may be wondering, we just found out what Jesus does with uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet alive in the fire, you know, they don't go to Hades. They skip that. They go straight to the lake of fire. But what about Satan? What happens to him? Well, he's not cast in the lake of fire, uh, not at this point anyway. Now look at Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. 
John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, one big logging chain. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then he says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast of the image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priest of God and of Christ and will reign with him one more time for a thousand years. Okay, more lengthy. We're talking to, we're going to talk about the characteristics of this thousand year period of time in just a moment. But here's the point I want to make right off the start here. John could not have been more clear about the millennium, could he? Uh, five times in six verses, he says a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. You can't get any more clear than that. But some Christians say they don't know how long this period of time is the millennium. You'd have to be a complete moron not to realize that it's a thousand years. John could not have been any more clear. You know, and guess what? There are some Christians who don't even believe in the millennium. Okay, we'll get into that. Now, how could John have said it any more clearly than he did right here? Now, even though the teaching of the return of Christ after the tribulation for a thousand years is very clear in Scripture, many Christians debate the subject of the millennium. You may have heard of these terms, pre-millennial, post-millennial, ah-millennial, okay? What do these terms mean? In regards to these three different terms, the question is, when does Christ return in relationship to the... That's where you get into these differences. Now, pre-millennial, which I believe pretty much all of us are in the same boat on Christ's returns, millennial. That is, Christ's second coming is before the thousand-year reign on the earth. This position is more at the question of the timing of Christ. It has to do what you believe about God's promise to believing Israel. Okay, The millennium is really more focused on Israel than anything else during this thousand-year time. Premillennialists, they believe that one day Christ is coming back to the earth to, to literally, literally, sit and rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem in order to fulfill those promises to believing Israel. Remember Abraham and that covenant? Some things haven't happened yet. When are things going to be fulfilled? During the thousand-year reign of Christ, these things will happen. They believe, premillennialists believe, he made an unconditional promise, didn't he, to Abraham and his believing descendants. Back in Genesis 12, we covered that many weeks ago. And even though we, the church of Jesus Christ, we benefit from some of these promises, God has a unique plan for believing Israel. 
like dwelling in all that land that they occupied. They occupied most of it during the reign of King Solomon, but still even then, they didn't have all of it. They will have all of that land during the millennium. And also, Messiah will sit on the throne of David, and he will rule, not from Tel Aviv, he will not rule from Washington, D.C., or New York City, or London, England. He's going to rule from Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Premillennialists believe God will fulfill his promises at this point. They see a distinction between the church and the believing descendants of Israel. And we're going to get to more of that, that there are some Christians who believe that the church has replaced Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth on, <coughs> on that position. Now, post-millennial position. Post is a prefix meaning what? After, okay, afterward. Some believe Jesus comes after this thousand-year period of time. Now, you may think, well, how in the world could that be, okay? They believe if Christians, listen to this, if Christians just work hard enough, things will get better and better on earth. I can stop right there. I'm going to give you a little bit more. That right there is so silly, okay? Okay, is things getting better and better right now? No, we're not on the ascend. We're on the descend, aren't we? They think we're going to create a utopia, a heaven on earth. That's what they believe. The world will be such a perfect place that it will be better prepared. It's going to be so much, we'll have it all ready to go. And Jesus is like, oh, i got to be a part of that. I'm going to come return right that moment. We'll never have this world ready enough for Jesus to return. Jesus is going to return when he, God the Father tells him it's time to return. And things are going to be at a tipping point, almost complete annihilation of all mankind when Christ finally returns. You know, this post-millennialism was popular back in the 17th century all the way into the midpoint of the 20th century. But guess what happened in the earlier part of the 20th century? In the midpoint, what happened? We had not one. We had two world wars, didn't we? Okay? Do you think better then? No, not at all. So once that happened, that idea pretty much just fizzled away. Things weren't getting better and better after two world wars. Postmillennialism is mostly a dead view, but however, it's been resurrected with a new name, Christian Reconstructionism. That's what it's been relabeled as. It's the idea that if we just elect all Christian legislators, that that's how we'll rein in and get this utopia, this perfect world now. And that these people want that God's laws in order to help create this millennium. Now, and also we can create a perfect society that will prepare the way for Christ. This is Christian Reconstructionism or post-millennialism. Now, that does sound like a lot of what we've said about getting involved in the political process. Yes, we do need to try to, we, we are rights, expectations, to vote for righteousness and the best kind of leaders that have enacted who stand by God's word. Sometimes we don't get that privilege, but we are to try to do that. But never are we going to be able to usher in a perfect society, a utopia by, by Christian leaders because they're just sinners saved by grace, just like the rest of us. We're not going to, I've said, we're not going to Christianize America where it's just a everybody's a Christian. That would be the perfect idea, wouldn't it? That, you know, we, I, that would be wonderful, but it's not going to happen. However, to the extent that our nation 
reverences God and respects his laws, we can postpone God's judgment for our country. That is inevitable. And we see America needs Jesus more than ever right now. That's why we preach the gospel, not to Christianize America, but to save Americans. That's it. And if we're enacting that and we see a movement, a Christian movement, a Jesus movement like we years ago, we can postpone God's inevitable. He'll, he'll delay it for a while because he see things are going like there should be. But anyway, and nowhere are we going to usher in Christ's second coming by creating a utopia. That's the difference in what we believe, salt and light, versus the post-millennial viewing, creating a utopia. Now, there's a third position. This is the ah-millennial position. That letter A in Greek before millennium means what? Ah, no, or without. It's an alpha primitive. You know, what? what is a theist? Theist, T-H-I-E-S-T. A theist is someone who believes in a God. But you put an A in front of that, atheist, no God. Make sense? Okay. Atheist, no God or without God. Now, putting that A before millennial, amillennial, what does that mean? They believe in no millennium at all. Now, historically, there have been Christians who have fallen to line with this teaching of a no-thousand-year reign of Christ, nothing. And to be fair, it's not that they don't believe in a rule of Christ. They believe it's a spiritual, not a physical rule of Christ. They believe the rule of Christ in Revelation 20 is how he rules in our own hearts after we Christ as Savior. They don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. They say that there will be a time of tribulation. Then the second coming of Christ will occur. And lastly, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. They see no rapture of the church. They don't see any thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, the amillennialists will say, yes, God did make some promises to Israel. He says, when they said, when Israel rejected Christ, God automatically transferred those blessings from Israel to the church. Who believes that? Nobody in this room really believes that. And that's not, that's because you shouldn't believe it. They say God transferred these promises from literal, visible promises to spiritual promises. And they say when the Old Testament talks about God's people, the Israelites inheriting the land one day, no longer does that apply to believing Israel. The church is going to receive all that land. Okay, that's what they think. And it now belongs to the church. And no longer is it a piece of real estate in a Palestinian area. It's now... It's now heaven the promises have been trans transformed to. The idea they say of Jesus inhabiting the promised land is really Christians going to heaven, okay? The heavenly Jerusalem. Now, I probably study more and more and scratch your head like I'm thinking, I don't know how in the world that they come out with these ideas, but people do. They make it out to what they want it to believe, don't they? And then, you know, that's why we sing that song, we're mar marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. They think it, that really means heaven. No, they, it's literally a heaven on earth. It's Jerusalem that God is going to create here, a new Jerusalem. 
The amillennialists, they see no distinction between Israel and the church whatsoever. And when they read about the new Israel, they think it's talking about the church, not the believing descendants of Abraham. Now, here's a big problem I have with that view. The promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants was not a conditional promise. It was an unconditional promise. Remember in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And in Genesis 15, God ratified that covenant because Abraham wanted to make sure that it was all in the up and up. And remember the story, you know, how uh, Abraham thought he was going to walk side by side with God and the lines of animal pieces cut in half and God was going to hold a torch and Abraham was going to hold a torch up and like they're ready to head off the Olympics or something like of that nature. But God did something very, very unique. What did he do to Abraham? He put him in a very, that sounds good right now, doesn't it? He put him in a very, very deep sleep. And why did he do that? So God and God alone could walk through those animal pieces, meaning it has nothing to do with you, Abraham, whatsoever, and your commitment it all has to do with me and my unconditional commitment to you and your believing descendants. Because if two kings come together and they ratify a covenant, sometimes one of them kings may go back on their word. God never goes back on his word, does he? Praise God to that. In the Old Testament, if there was a conditional treaty, both, both the kings, like I said, they would participate. And that signified that each, they were dependent on one another to keep up with their end of the bargain to fulfill their part of the deal. So God put Abraham to sleep and God went alone signifying his promise of faithfulness. It had everything to do with God's faithfulness. Now remember, David reiterated this in Psalm 89, verses 30 through 36. He said, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But he says, I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, he says, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and is thrown as the sun before me. Once God makes a promise, you can bank on it. You better believe it. Bibles, the Bible says God's promise to Abraham and his believing descendants was an unconditional promise. Now, and if God does not fulfill these promises in believing Israel, how, does, how do we know he's going to fulfill his promises to us? But we don't of a God like that. We don't have to worry about it. When we look at every Old Testament prophet, they all look forward to the coming of the Messiah, didn't they? You know he did, every last one of them. Not in heaven, but here on earth for that thousand-year period of time. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. This verse is chiseled across the street from the UN, United Nations on a wall. He says, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for my peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. There is a time known as the millennium, perfect peace on the earth. Isaiah 11, you read of the wolf and the lamb lying down together, you know, uh, it, just imagine that. You do that right now, what's going to happen to that little old innocent lamb? There'll be no more lamb. Our kitty cat, Sonny, is just dying to get a hold of the girl's parakeets. She's looking for every opportunity to get a hold of them two little Tweety Birds in there and just have them for a birdie lunch. But she's almost come close. She's knocked the cage off the hook. It hit the floor. Birds went squawking. Feathers went flying. Birds see one all over, but she still didn't get to them. One of these days, another version of the kitty cat and parakeets, they will just get along and sing along and hold all and wing and sing Kumbaya. They'll get along perfect. But right now, that doesn't happen because we live in a fallen world, and the kitty cat's just doing what she thinks is best. And I don't think she's doing what's best. She gets punished for it. But anyway, one of these days, it won't be that way. Okay? Look at Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. He says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not, te they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. He's talking about a time on earth when everybody will know the Lord. That ain't happened yet, has it? But it's going to happen. There will be no more need for me or uh, Charles Stanley or anyone else out there to stand up and preach, because if you already know everything about the Lord, there's nothing more I can tell you or anyone else. There'll be a time that's going to happen. God's law will be written on every person's heart, the Bible says. Everyone will reverence God. What a day that'll be. Everyone's going to reverence God. Now, some people will say that all these prophecies made to believing Israel were already fulfilled. Okay, Jesus returned from Babylon in 538 B.C. They said these promises that inherited land and they had a spiritual revival. And those things were kind of fulfilled at that point. And anyone who knows from history, that is absolutely not true. When they returned to Israel, they did not occupy all the land. I've done said that once earlier before. They never have occupied all of this promised land that they have been promised. Not yet. Also, they didn't dwell safely into the uh, safely either as promised. Remember in 70 AD, what happened under Rome, the Romans and Titus? They came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Okay, that's that happened as well. That promise was not fulfilled when Israel returned from exile. The idea of a worldwide revival where everyone knows the Lord again, I ask you, does anybody know a time that's happened in history? A worldwide revival where everyone come to faith in Christ? No. That's what we pray for, but that hasn't happened yet. The Jews momentarily, they experienced a temporary awakening, but then it was slipped away into apostasy. Other people say these prophecies will be filled in heaven, they'll say. 
all the Old Testament prophecies of justice and righteousness and freedom from sin, they'll say, they say is a reverence to heaven, a reference to heaven. That idea doesn't work either, if you think about it. Look at Isaiah 65, verses 19 and 21. This is a prophecy about God's kingdom. He says, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will be no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and of the sound of crying. No longer that will there be, be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought to be accursed. There will be houses and inhabit, and they will inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. That happened right now? We have infant death, tragically, don't we? Do, does everyone live to be 100? No. If you get to 100, do they still do the, the recognition on a Today Show? Put the person's name up, and they've reached one, a milestone. They've reached 100. There's a day coming that everyone's going to be. It doesn't say your 100th birthday and you're going to drop dead. I believe people are going to live, like in the Old Testament, they may live several hundred years. You ready for that? Well, we're not going to be ready. We're going to be in a glorified body. But those are going to be a generation of Christians who are going to be invited into the millennium after the second coming. They're going to live. They're going to live on. And if they don't live to be 100, they're going to thought to be a curse, the Bible says. Isaiah was looking forward to that period of time when no babies would die. Also, people would live out to be 100 or older. Now, what period of time is he talking about? The operatorialist says, he, that they're referenced in heaven. Well, that makes no sense because there's no death in heaven, is there? In heaven, we live forever. Forever. Revelation 21.4 says, we live forever. No more sickness, no more death, no more anything like that. If Isaiah here isn't talking about a period in time in which we are living now, where we see babies dying all the time and people uh, dying well before 100, and if he's not talking about heaven, we're well, there is no death. What period of time is he talking about here? He's talking about the millennium, a thousand-year period of time. This coming of Christ was also taught throughout the New Testament. Remember the message Jesus had talked about through John the Baptist in Matthew 4, 17? He said, For that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said. Then he said in Matthew 10, 7, he says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came the first time on earth, he offered to set up his kingdom to the, to, to the religious leaders during that time on earth. And had, think about this. If those Jews at that time had said, okay, yes, we will accept, we acknowledge you as Messiah, and we want you to set up your kingdom right now, guess what would have happened? The kingdom of God would have been established right at that moment. You may be thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, now hold on a minute. If they did that, what about us people? What about the Gentiles? If they had accepted him instead of rejecting him, that means there would have been no crucifixion. And if there had been no crucifixion, there would have been no, no death and no resurrection. And if there had not been any of that things, we'd have been left with nothing. That's exactly the truth. 
but the genius plan of God was for the partial hardening of his own people, the Jews, to reject Christ so that you and I and everyone else out there listening, we could have that opportunity for salvation. What a strategic plan that is. It may sound kind of hard-hearted on God's part, but no, because God loves everyone. Everyone has a chance at salvation. The theme in Romans 11 is God used that rejection of Messiah so that we can be part of that salvation plan. They rejected God's kingdom and the idea of Messiah's rule over them, his perfect rule over the earth. Now, just because the kingdom of God has has been rejected doesn't mean it hasn't been been forfeited. It's just been temporarily postponed, hasn't it? There's a time coming when Christ will rule over the world. Now, what is the kingdom of God? If you ever wondered, you read about it over and over, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. What exactly is the kingdom of God? Now, think of it in in an earthly in an earthly way, okay, for a moment. A king's kingdom is a that specific geographical area or a territory where what the king wants done gets done. Okay. We don't we don't have many kings and, and monarchs anymore like we did uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Not like back then. It's where the king, what he wants done will actually get done. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about where God's will is perfectly being done, okay? It's where God faces absolutely no opposition whatsoever. It's where what God wants done is actually going to get done. Now, where is that? You know, in one sense, God is sovereign over the entire universe. Everybody follow me? The entire universe, he's sovereign over all of it. But in a practical sense, there's one little out of all the universe, as vast as, as it is, and no telling. Just imagine how large. We're just in one galaxy, all the numerous galaxies that consume this entire universe. There's one little spot, little speck of dust and gas and dirt where God's will isn't being done. Where is that? It's right here. Planet Earth. Planet Earth is that one little bitty speck out of all the universe where God's will is not completely being done right now. Right now on planet Earth, we see complete opposition to uh, God's will being done all, all the time, don't we? We see it over and over. Now, guess what? That's only temporary. It's only temporary. One day, God's will is going to be done on this earth, and it's going to be done in heaven. And we are, to, we are to pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. And when is that time going to be? It's going to start during the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium, the millennium. Now, just think of what this world would be like as Jeremiah prophesied about it, that everyone knew the Lord and obeyed God's rule. Just imagine living like that way right now. Man, what a glorious time that would be, wouldn't it? where everybody is submitting their own will to God's will. It would truly be heaven on earth, wouldn't it? There's a time coming when that is going to happen. Now, the kingdom of God has only been, it ain't been canceled, it has been postponed for a while. Even though the kingdom of God is still future, there's a sense in, we, there's a sense in which we can experience God's kingdom right now. We don't have to just live go under a rock and wait for the sweet by and by. We have many benefits right now of following Christ, you know, in our lives. Matthew 13, Jesus told a series of parables. 
and they illustrated how the kingdom of God is at work in the hearts in, in believers. And even though right now the world as a complete whole isn't submitting their will to God, the Bible says when we submit our to God our will, we will experience the kingdom in our life right now. To the extent that, that you obey God, you can experience all the benefits of the kingdom. You can have peace through Christ. We can have contentment. We have power over sin, don't we? We have that, we have that privilege. Strength over addictions. There are many things we can experience right now in our own Christian lives. All of these benefits that come to earth that come to earth one day can be ours right now when we submit to the kingdom rule of God. God's kingdom is as big as, as you are right now. Think about it. It includes the area of your life where you submit yourself to God and where what God wants done in your life is actually going to get done in your life. And it's a tough struggle because we live in a fallen, sin-sick world. We're just sinners saved by grace, but we're to try to strive for those things, the things that are, are going to come in the kingdom. We can experience them right now. And that greatest illustration of God's kingdom and when it's going to come came in Acts chapter 1. Just think about it. Clearly, Jesus' apostles were expecting a literal kingdom on earth. Now, before we get into this quick scriptures on Acts chapter 1, look at the setting. Jesus had already been resurrected, and he spent 40 days on the earth, remember? And now that he was ready in the Mount of Olives, he was ready to leave the building, so to speak, to ascend into heaven. And then they asked, Lord, before you go, haven't you forgotten something? There's something you promised us. You haven't done it yet. Look at Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now stop here and think about how Jesus could have, he could have corrected their thinking. Think about it. Especially if their understanding of the millennium had been faulty. And in fact, there was no real millennium. It was just a spiritual kingdom. You know, that promise that he promised them. I'll give you an illustration, okay? All right, I love using... <laughs> Gary, the illustration. It's just funny. I'm sorry. But I'm gonna I'm gonna use you all for a moment, okay? Let's just say that one day they're sitting around the house and and they hear a constant, constant drip, and there's a little leak coming from the kitchen sink and the plumbing underneath the sink. And and Gary says, Honey, don't you worry about it. I'm gonna take care. I'm gonna fix that leaky faucet. I'm gonna fix that leak. Okay, and she says, All right. Honey, I believe what you, I promise you, okay? In a few days go by, Gary is out working, taking care of the church. He's taking care of the yard, doing all that. And Donna's working, and she hears that coming from the kitchen. She's like, he hasn't fixed that yet. I thought he promised me. Well, Gary comes in, wore out, and, and everything beside himself from all the heat and humidity. And, honey, aren't you going to fix that? And Gary says, oh, you know, I didn't mean that literally. I, I was just... Speaking uh, figuratively, I really didn't mean that. And she said, well, you promised me. Well, the next day, he's getting ready to go on, on a missionary journey with the Gideons out of town. Gary, aren't you going to fix that leak? He said, I told you, honey, I didn't, I didn't really mean that literally. Just figuratively, you're going to be okay. And he storms out and, and leaves. How do you think she's going to feel? Gary's leaving the building. He's leaving the house. And Donna just sat there distraught, and she's 
writing down the plan she's got when he comes back home, you know, whatever. So think about it. God made these promises. Jesus made the promise of a king, the literal kingdom, and he's leaving the building. And the apostles are disgruntled, probably even upset. Wait a minute. You promised. Where's his kingdom? Aren't you going to establish his kingdom now? You know, the three years Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of God, he was going to fix this broken world. And now here Jesus is getting ready to take the ultimate out-of-town trip. And the disciples are yelling to the top of the lungs, wait a minute, you forgot. And now had the disciples misunderstood the kingdom, don't you think Jesus would have corrected them on their misunderstanding, on their thinking? He could have said, you got me all wrong. I didn't mean a literal a kingdom that I was going to fix this broken world. I was speaking spiritually. I was speaking figuratively. But he didn't do that, did he? Look what he said in verse 7 of Acts 1. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He was saying it's not that you don't understand the nature of the kingdom. You just don't understand the timing of the kingdom. Okay? Just like we don't understand the timing of the rapture. No one knows when the rapture is going to happen. But we know it's coming. It's inevitable, don't we? It's only for God the Father to know when that time is going to be. Jesus taught that there is such a time coming. Revelation eleven fifteen, John says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of uh, the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You may be thinking, you know, that's all interesting about this millennium. You know, so what? What difference does it make? if there's going to be a literal kingdom or not. You know, what do I really need to know about this kingdom? This morning, four things that every Christian needs to understand and know about the millennium. Number one, only Christians will enter the millennium. At the end of the tribulation, there will be many who become Christians during the tribulation. Majority of them are going to pay a heavy price. They're going to be martyred for their faith. Many will be non-Christians killed due to all the natural disasters. So there will be both Christians and non-Christians who survive when Christ's return. Now, follow her on just a minute. But there will be a judgment, though, before this millennial reign that will separate believers and non-believers. Only believers will be, will be invited to be a part of the millennial reign of Christ. Where do I find this at? Matthew 24, verses 36 through 42. People think this is the rapture. We've talked about this before. People are, oh, Jesus there mentioned the rapture. Well, here it is. Oh, no, it's not. Let's read and see what it says. Jesus says, but at that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, there, there were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Here we go. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. 
Therefore, be on the alert, Jesus says, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He's describing here the outline of the end times. Verses 1 through 28 of that chapter, he's describing the tribulation to the disciples. He describes his second coming in verses 29 through 31. Now, we, we looked at verses 36 through 42. Now, the question is, where is the one taken who is taken from the field? He's not taken to heaven. He's taken into judgment, okay? That same word, the, fl the flood came and took them all away, is used to describe the person in the field who was taken away. Two people are taken into, the, those people are taken into lasting judgment. The persons left will enter into the millennium. Now remember the context, the tribulation had already occurred, okay? Christ is coming back at his second coming. There will be a judgment that will occur. Christ, when he returns, there's going to be a judgment just like when the floods came and took all those away from that judgment. Matthew 25, verses 31 and 34, and verse 41, talk about the judgment of the sheep. The goats are going to be separated. Okay? That's not talking about the rapture. That's talking about before pre-lineal at the time. Those who will be taken will be taken into a judgment, and those left are going to be invited into Christ's millennial reign. Number two, Christ will rule. Christians will rule with Christ during the millennium. The Bible says the 12 apostles will be, will be delegated some authority. Some will be given to Christians, martyred after the or during the tribulation. Some authority will be given to you and me. Now, don't, let's don't get a big head there. We're going to have some authority. God's going to give us responsibility. 2 Timothy 2.12 says. Number three, to remember about the millennium, Jerusalem will be the center of the millennial kingdom. I stressed that earlier. Not in Tel Aviv, not anywhere else in the world, but Jerusalem will. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the prophets said the real actual city of Jerusalem will be the center of Messiah rule. That will be where it's at. Even though the city is going through, will go through many topological changes at the second coming, it's going to be enjoy, enjoyable with enhanced uh, fertility. It's going to be where Jerusalem where Messiah will rule. And I believe that explains a lot of the conflict in the East right now. Jerusalem is ground zero in the Middle East. Do you ever notice that? It is ground zero for all the conflict we see going on. Who's going to control Jerusalem? The Muslims want it. They have a part of it right now. And it's really fascinating when you go back and you look at history. For 3,500 years, God's people have been the ones, the Israelites, who have maintained their, their presence in Israel. And since 1852, Jews have been the majority of the residents in Jerusalem. But yet the Muslims want it. Now, that to me, that's very interesting. Why do the Muslims want Jerusalem so bad? Did you know there, the Quran, the Quran does not mention Jerusalem one time? Not one time does it mention Jerusalem, but yet they still want it. They still want it. Yet you find 600 mentions of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, 144 mentions of Jerusalem in the New Testament. Jerusalem belongs to the Jewish people, ladies and gentlemen. 
And because of that, I believe it's going to be the catalyst that sparks this great war of Armageddon, the control over Jerusalem. Now, number four, Satan will be temporarily, that's a key word, temporarily bound during the thousand-year reign. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Since the beginning of history, Satan has tried to deceive the world with this one thought. Me and Dad were talking about this yesterday. Satan, his great deception, his great lie, is that you can live life apart from God. Not only is it possible, but it's preferable. That's ultimately Satan's plan, to keep you from living for God. And because of that, people follow that lie. We see it right now, don't we? We see that. This has created the world in which we live. The Bible says there's coming a period in history when Satan will be bound. This world is going to experience what it should have been like in the beginning, where everyone has submitting their will to God. Notice after that time, Satan is going to be released a little longer. And if you read further, you find he's actually going to deceive some people from following him. Here we go. Okay, this is a question that was most amazing how these questions I didn't know what I was going to preach on. But here we go. He's going to be released for a short time. He's actually going to deceive some people, the Bible says. Is it possible? Now, pay attention to me. Is it possible that after all of these, these thousands of years, not only the last thousand years at the end of the millennium, but since the beginning of history and the fall of man, the plan of salvation is coming to place. Is it possible that you and I could be deceived? Because we're going to be in the millennium. Is it possible at the very last moment that we could be deceived? Could we make that ir irreversible decision and follow Satan and be lost forever? And if it isn't possible, who is it? The question is, in closing, who is it that is going to be deceived at the very end of the thousand-year reign of Christ? You want to know the answer? Come back next Sunday, and I'll give you the answer. How's that for a cop-out? As we learn, we learn about the millennium, and we'll find out, and we'll answer this question next Sunday as we get into the great white throne judgment. Let's bow together in prayer. There is a time coming. Perfect peace will rule in this world. It's coming. The Bible has talked about it from front cover to the very end, the maps. The kingdom of God is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. As you see in this world, starvation, uh, illness, death, all kinds of disease, ridicule, hatred, on and on and on, all the abortions, everything, all the evil that's in this world. God's will isn't being done, but it will be done one day. And wouldn't you want to be a part of that thousand-year reign of perfect peace where Satan will be bound? If you're not a Christian this morning and you're listening to this message, 
You feel the conviction of God's Spirit working in your life, working on your heart, telling you you need a Savior. Everything else you may may or may not have tried to do isn't working. Christ is the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You have to accept Christ as Savior and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You have to realize you are a a sinner and you need forgiveness. You can't forgive yourselves. None of us can forgive ourselves. Only Christ can offer forgiveness. If you're feeling that this morning in your heart, wherever you are, wherever you may be, it's so simple a child could come to Christ. I've heard of people being saved at the age of four, some great men and women of faith, saved as young as toddlers to understand the gospel truth of Christ, what he came to do for us, to provide that way of, of escape from our sins and from and to accept salvation. If you're feeling that right now, you can pray this simple prayer with me, uh, silent in your heart, but you have to really mean it. God's Spirit needs to be working with you. If that's happening, you're ready to make that commitment. You can pray this prayer with me. Dear God, thank you for loving me. And I really understand. I know that I have sinned against you in so many ways. And I am truly sorry for the sins of my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, not by any of my good works or anything I've done, but by what Christ and Christ alone did for me to forgive me of my sins. And right now I'm asking you, Christ, to forgive me of those sins. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And I'm praying this morning that you will help me spend the rest of my life serving you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer and you really meant it in all of your heart, you are now a child of God. Never before was you a child of God until this moment. If you accepted Christ and Christ's own trust for the forgiveness of your sins. Life is new in Christ. Things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new now, the Bible teaches. You're going to tell people it's going to be in you. It was for me all those years ago. The first thing I wanted to do was go home and tell my parents what Christ did for me. It doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. It's going to be a struggle. It always has been and always will be. But you're going to know the side of God and not history. You are following Christ and trusting in Him as your Savior. You're going to want to give a testimony of what He did for you at that moment. You're going to want to get a Bible-believing church, just like this one, Pleasant View Missionary Baptist. We welcome you if you don't have a home church. If you have a church you've been visiting and putting off Christ's calling in your life through the Holy Spirit, get it to that Bible-believing church. Make sure they teach the whole counsel of God's Word, and don't cherry-pick things that make you feel good for the moment. They better teach about sin and what sin does to people and teach the whole counsel of God's Word. We welcome anyone and everyone here who have accepted Christ as Savior. And because of also because of that, your Christian walk, you can't do it by yourself. We needed You need like-minded believers to come together to help you when you're down. And we can help others to encourage them and help lift them up. That's what the Christian walk and the Christian faith is all about. It's a relationship with Christ and others. We love meeting with each other and like-minded believers. It's a time to get away from the things of the world and enjoy fellowship with people who love God and love the things of God and love Jesus and are so thankful for what he's done in their life. 
you're going to want to do that as well. We encourage you to listen to this for information. Also on our website, pdbaptistchurch.org. Daniel has done a wonderful job of putting all this together. We praise God for him. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that no one, not just the people who have been listening to this message, but those abroad throughout our great country, throughout our world, who have who have heard and ex- and heard that plan of salvation, heard and understand and know that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and they have felt that conviction on their heart to take that step of faith forward to commit their life to Christ. I pray this morning that none will resist your call of salvation, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast. For more information about our church, including service times and videos of our latest sermons, visit our website at www.pvbaptistchurch.org.